You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And if you tuned in last week, you would have heard our episode on all things COVID. Basically an update on um, infection rate, case rate, um, death rate, vaccination rates. We talked about vaccine efficacy, vaccine effectiveness. We talked about variants. We talked about boosters. So basically um, making up for all the lost time in between season one and season two. So if you have not yet checked that out, we ask that you that you do so. And this week, we're really excited that we get to take a little bit of a breather, (laughs) and we are very excited. I'll keep it a secret for just a minute, Um, but we have an incredible guest on the pod today, and we are going to answer the question, are artificial sweeteners harmful? And we get this question all the time. Mm -hmm. And our guest gets it probably even more often than we do. So um, we decided to bring her on to debunk some of the myths and misconceptions. But before we dig in, just as a reminder, we've got a new partnership with Descent Pins. And if you don't know them, they make pins, jewelry, t-shirts, and more fun stuff that celebrate science. And one of our favorite collections is the Women in Science collections for obvious reasons. Learn more about pioneering women scientists and celebrate them through pins and jewelry. Each product comes with a booklet to teach you more about these badass women. I have to say, I have the Grace Hopper pin, and I'm a big, big, big time fan. Um, so get yours today at descentpins.com slash women in science. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com slash women in science. And use discount code unbiased15 to get 15% off your order. All right, guys, I am so excited about this. I am a total fangirl of our guest today. You know her as Food Science Babe. So Erin has a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Minnesota. She's worked in the food industry for over a decade in both the conventional and natural organic sectors as an engineer and food scientist. So she started her page in 2018 to combat myths about food and the food industry. In addition to being a stay-at-home mom to her five-year-old daughter, she consults for small startup food companies doing product development work, scale-up, as well as nutrition panel creation and regulatory guidance. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Andrea, did you want to kick things off here? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Erin is... 
one of our go-to people to debunk all sorts of food, nutritional misinformation. Um, if you haven't checked her Instagram out, it's at Food Science Babe. Um, but she really does an amazing job at getting into the nitty-gritty, the nuance and the science behind it. And so when we wanted to tackle this topic of artificial sweeteners, which we get all the time, and I get into this debate daily because I love my diet soda. I get told all the time, oh, it's dangerous. Oh, it causes cancer. Oh, it does this. Oh, it does that. And so who better than Aaron to come on and help us debunk a lot of this stuff? So I thought we would maybe kick it off a little bit about some of the types of artificial sweeteners, maybe a little bit of like an intro and a chemistry um, about them. And I think at least for time purposes, we'll maybe focus on the top four that are FDA authorized. Um, So we'll talk about sucralose. Um, We'll talk about aspartame. We'll talk a little bit about saccharin, which is our oldest artificial sweetener. And then we'll talk a little bit about stevia. Um, So, Aaron, I'm going to hand it over to you. Do you want to give us kind of a quick breakdown about some of the chemistry behind artificial sweeteners and kind of how they relate in terms of taste compared to typical sugars like sucrose or glucose? Yeah. So basically the reason why um, they are you know, considered low or no calorie is, um, so some of them aren't metabolized by our body. So we're not, um, you know, we're not getting any calories from them. Some of them actually are. Uh, so like, for example, aspartame is four calories per gram, just like sucrose is. However, um, since it is so much sweeter, that one in particular is 200 times sweeter than sugar. So a lot less can be used. So therefore it ends up being basically no calories um, because you, when you're formulating with one of these artificial sweeteners, you're using way less than you are, you know, if you're replacing sugar. And um, I mean, even if you use those packets, um, typically they're either, you know, cut with something like maltodextrin or erythritol Mm. just to give it some more volume because some of these are, you know, hundreds to thousands of times sweeter than regular sugar. So it's like you barely need any to get the same sweetness as sugar. So that's why they are so low in calorie. That's such an interesting point. I think maybe it, it bears reiterating. So, you know, when we talk about calories, when we're eating food, we're looking at those macromolecules and how our body actually processes them and extracts energy from them, right? So we know that protein... Um, carbohydrates, sugars in a simplistic view, and proteins all have different calories per mass, right? And so, Aaron, what you're saying is that these low-calorie or no-calorie artificial sweeteners, they either aren't broken down by our body at all, so we're not even extracting any potential calories from them, or the amount that we would actually use of them is so tiny that any energy we would be consuming is, is minimal at best. Yep, exactly. So what what was kind of the the initial, you know, I was reading some stuff that was saying saccharin originally gained popularity during during the First World War when there were food shortages and they were trying to find ways to make food more palatable without utilizing sugar which was at a premium at the time and that that was actually created or synthesized in a lab in the late 1800s. Um, and that was eventually branded as sweet and low. Is that right? The pink packets that we all know? Yep. So a lot of them, interestingly enough, like if you look at the history, a lot of them were just accidentally discovered. Um, 
So sometimes it was in drug development and, uh, you know, accidentally somehow not very good lab practices. <laughs> they would accidentally, <laughs> the scientists um, accidentally tasted, I think saccharin happened that way and I'm pretty sure aspartame did as well. Um, they accidentally tasted it and they weren't even trying to make an artificial sweetener and they were like, oh, this this compound is sweet. And so it was just <laughs> sort of accidental. So I don't even think they were necessarily trying to make an artificial mm -hmm. sweetener. It just sort of happened, which is really interesting. But it it became popular. Saccharin specifically has been used to sweeten foods and beverages since the early 1900s. Yeah. And I know sucralose is one of our newer ones. And that one is actually derived from sucrose. They actually chemically alter the structure of that sugar molecule so that it still offers sweetness and is actually, what what is it, 500 times or 600 times sweeter? Yeah, it's 600 um, times sweeter. Yeah. And that's and that's branded as Splenda, right? That That's sucralose. So, you know, as we've evolved our scientific prowess, so to speak. We've also evolved some of these, you know, additional artificial sweeteners. So let's get into it because I think the biggest misconception, and I think a lot of them stem from this misconception, is that they're, you know, sugar is bad for you, but artificial sweeteners are even worse for you. And I think for me, one of the questions that I always want to answer is, well, what do you mean by worse, you know? And I think that really kind of opens the door to a lot of the other questions. So Aaron, you know, do you have any initial thoughts before we dig into the more specific myths? I think a lot of times, you know, it, it, it really comes down to the appeal to nature fallacy. A lot of times it's like, yeah. oh, well, that's, you know, made in a lab and you hear, you know, it's synthetic made in a lab. So therefore it's worse than sugar because we consider sugar to be natural. But obviously that's not a, you know, a scientific argument. So we need to actually like dive into the evidence to determine whether it is actually unsafe. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the actual claims. So one of the common ones that we hear a lot is that artificial sweeteners cause weight gain. So maybe let's tackle that one first, because I guess in the context of dietary science and nutrition, you know, that could be viewed as being a, a negative consequence. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So obviously, like, the actual compounds themselves, like, aren't going to cause the weight gain because you're not getting calories. So I think the argument mm -hmm. typically is that I've heard the argument of it, somehow it's like tricking your body into thinking you're consuming calories when you're not. So therefore you end up eating more. Um, I've heard that argument, but 
Um, the actual studies show that that isn't the case, and it it can they can help to aid in weight loss. I also just want to say, like, you know, this this isn't it, it's a tool. You know, it's a tool that can be used. Um, if it doesn't work for specific people, it doesn't work. But it you know it can be used. There are studies that do show that consuming low calorie sweeteners, especially like you know replacing let's say you do drink a, you know, full sugar soda every single day and you and you start replacing it with um, one of these, uh, you know, a diet soda or something like that. Obviously, you're reducing calories overall in your diet. So, you know, that will potentially lead to weight loss. There's also some randomized uh, trials that have shown um, they actually help to decrease hunger. They help to, if you drink like a low calorie beverage with dinner, it can help to um, reduce dessert intake like after that meal um, compared to those who drank water with that meal. So yeah, I think there's this narrative and, I, and I'm and i not really sure, you know, it's not really based on evidence. I think mm-hmm. I think it's just people thinking, and I, I honestly used to think this too before I actually looked into the evidence, you know, like 10 or so years ago when I didn't really know much about this stuff, but I had heard that myth so much. And I think that's also what happens is like, we just hear these myths so much that we just like assume they must be true. Right. But yeah, when you actually look at the evidence, like, they can definitely be used, you know, if somebody is trying to lose weight, they can be a tool to help with that for sure. Yeah. And I think I think the point that you make about, you know, fooling your brain to thinking sugar is coming in, there's a difference between kind of the sensation or the perception of sweetness compared to actual chemical signaling that's occurring in your body, right? If if these sweeteners, even if they taste and your brain is recognizing, oh, this is sweet based on your taste bud reception, the sugar itself is entering these metabolic pathways in our body, whereas these artificial sweeteners are not entering those pathways. So there's a difference between a physiological effect and a psychological effect. Yeah. And a lot of times too, like, you know, we're not necessarily drinking a soda because like we need those calories. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. we have a craving for something sweet. So like, you know, there are studies that do show that it satisfies that craving and you don't end up eating more sugar throughout the day. Like, you know, it can satisfy that craving and can help you to reduce calories throughout the day. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So the next one is, and and I know we've all heard it, is that artificial sweeteners cause cancer. And, you know, I just want to remind our listeners that we did a couple of episodes last season about kind of the basics of cancer. And when we talk about cancer, we're really talking about hundreds to thousands of different diseases, but ultimately they're all caused or they're a result of uncontrolled cell growth, which What ends up happening is our body doesn't listen to normal cues, and then cells start to grow out of control. And the reason this happens is because of mutations. So just like SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 can mutate when it reproduces, our body can mutate when it reproduces. And most of those mutations are random because every time our cell replicates, random errors can occur. But there are things that we consider carcinogens, and those are chemicals or environmental exposures that can accelerate the rate of those mutations, or they can lead to specific mutations that are more likely to cause cancer. And I think a lot of the 
initial misconception about artificial sweeteners and causing cancer were based on data that was collected in animal studies. And I think it's really important to understand that human physiology and animal physiology are not the same. Um, We use animals as research models before we move into humans for ethical and moral reasons, of course. Um, But there's, there's a few nuances that I think need to kind of lay the groundwork before we get into that discussion. So yeah, so Erin, let's dig in a little bit about the the myth that artificial sweeteners cause cancer. Yeah, I think what you said is key. Um, you know, I see these rodent studies being cited a lot, whether it's somebody that is, you know, purposefully trying to deceive or whether they're just, you know, not really sure how to evaluate the evidence. But, you know, like you said, that is that obviously we are going to test it in, you know, animal models first to see if there is anything going on there. But there are some very, you know, high dose rodent studies that people will pick out. So one of them specifically, uh, saccharin was actually at one point banned because it did show, I think it was specifically bladder cancer in, Mm. in rodents. And it was later found out that this doesn't happen in humans. So, Um, They realized like, you know, this from further studies, this isn't actually something that happens in humans. So they ended up um, approving it again or allowing it again. But yeah, I mean, none of these at the amounts that we consume in foods are cancer causing. And so I think, you know, I always say on my page, like probably 10 times a day, the dose makes the poison. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So these studies also can be used to figure out um, the acceptable daily intake as well. So obviously we need to gather that data to understand, you know, what is a safe level. Um, And then there's a bunch of safety factors built into those numbers to end up getting to the acceptable daily intake. Um, and each of these uh, artificial sweeteners, you would have to eat 20 to like 100 packets a day to reach that (laughs) acceptable daily intake. And if you've had a packet of these sweeteners, I mean, they're very sweet. Like you're not eating (laughs) even close to that much every single day. Um, And that's still already like a conservative number, that ADI. And so I mean, really, like the doses we have to, I mean, these these are very, very sweet uh, compounds. And so we're consuming them at very, very, very low amounts. So we can't just take these, you know, rodent studies at super high amounts and, you know, it potentially could cause cancer. But that doesn't mean that the amounts that we're consuming, um, these very low amounts are causing cancer. And yeah, I mean, the evidence does not show that the low amounts that humans are consuming um, cause cancer. Yeah. And I think you made another great point there. Of course, you know, Jess and I preach the dose makes the poison about almost everything because anything can be toxic at a high enough dose and anything can be harmful at a high enough dose. But you have to keep that in context. But but on top of that, you know, you also have to keep in context you know, the relevance, right? So if you're if you're doing a study in a rat that has a, a different a different method to metabolizing these artificial sweeteners than humans and that 
predisposes them to developing cancer, that's an entirely separate issue than in humans that do not have that, you know, genetic predisposition. So again, you can't compare directly an animal study to a human study. And and I know that these follow-up studies have been done in other types of artificial sweeteners like aspartame and sucralose as well. And again, if you give them high enough doses of of them, you you could promote tumor growth in, in a mouse or in a rat. Um, but but this has never occurred in humans. Again, the doses are completely disproportionate, and there have been no data to date that suggests that artificial sweeteners cause cancer in humans. And both Cancer Research UK, the National Cancer Institute, and the American Cancer Society um, all state that there is no link between cancer and these artificial sweeteners. But another thing that I think is really important, and, it's, and it brings me back to my undergraduate cancer biology courses, where anything can cause cancer at a high enough dose because cancer is a result of mutation because of cell reproduction, right? So if you take in excessive amounts of nutrients, whether it's something that normally we would consider healthy or not, your body has to work more to to metabolize that and it's going to be replicating its cells faster and more and that's going to just lead to more mutations by you know, the fact that you're metabolizing more things, you know, so even things that we consider benign or even beneficial, many of these nutrients that we say are really good to get in our diet can lead to cancer at a really, really, really high dose. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that that the dose does, in fact, make the poison. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, there's specific compounds in pretty much every fruit or vegetable that if you were to administer them, you know, to rodents at super high doses, they could potentially be cancer-causing, but obviously that doesn't mean that those foods are cancer-causing in humans because um, we're not eating those high doses of those compounds. So, yeah. Exactly. I think the big takeaway here is that while animal studies may lead to some scary-sounding conclusions about artificial sweeteners, we have to remember that Animal studies are not the same as humans. Our biologies are distinctly different. And the vast majority of those studies are using extremely high levels of these artificial sweeteners in order to see if we can induce tumor formation. And those levels are completely disproportionate to the amount we would ever consume in any sort of realistic world. So I think we can put the myth that artificial sweeteners cause cancer to bed. Yeah, and I also just want to note, too, like, when aspartame first came out, like, it was probably not used in as many foods as it as it's used in today. So they're also, you know, constantly updating, like, our dietary intake, like, the average intake or what, what could be the highest amount that somebody is consuming throughout a day. Because obviously, like, as these get more popular and put into more foods, um, that dose very well does increase sometimes, Um and so they're they're constantly monitoring that as well, just to make sure that it doesn't get to the point where it's like, oh, it's in so many foods that somebody could be reaching a harmful amount. So that that also is monitored, and it, it, these none of them still are even coming close to those um, you know safe amounts that we can consume on a daily basis. That's a great point. 
So I, I'm not sure this is accurate, um, but I think I remember reading certain countries ban aspartame uh, is that, or stevia. Maybe I have that. I don't know. And I think I remember hearing a particular concern from some of my friends who live in Europe about fertility and, and these potential disturbances in fertility. Um, it was definitely stevia, that there that stevia can lead to infertility. So I scoped it out and that that's not the case. So, Andrew, I know you you um, did some digging into the science of it. Do you do you want to start talking about those studies? Um, I, I could tell you just before I cue you, <laughs> Andrea, um, that when I was looking at the studies, the ones that I came across were all preclinical um, studies that were conducted among mice and rats. So we're talking about animal studies, and the studies that I came across did not have did not show any instance of hormone disruption or fertility concerns at all in human studies. Yeah, you know, just think you bring up a good point. Um, you know, these rumors did in fact start internationally and it and actually began really over the last decade or so, but kind of accelerated in like um the mid 10s, so 2015, 2016, 2017. And a lot of these claims um have arisen stating that there are links between consumption of artificial sweeteners and infertility. And not just infertility, but they also make claims about decreased sperm count, decreased sperm motility, success rates for in vitro fertilization, etc. And and ultimately a lot of this these myths or misconceptions really go back to that study in the 1970s with rats and saccharin, where they gave them mega doses of saccharin and identified that they developed this particular type of bladder cancer. Um, and, and again, as we talked about earlier in the episode, that bladder cancer was actually a unique situation these rats, they had a particular gene that humans do not have. Plus, they gave them huge doses of saccharin. And as as we've, you know, repeated, makes the poison. Um, there have been no data to suggest that artificial sweeteners of any kind, saccharin or otherwise, um, lead to risks of cancer in humans. So a lot of this, um, a lot of these other kind of health-related risks um, about artificial sweeteners are kind of born out of that original claim. Um, that has obviously since been debunked, but it, it all really boils down to this kind of fear-based lack of understanding and particularly some of the nuance between these preclinical animal studies and what really happens in humans. You know, we need to understand that we are not just larger Right. right, right, and and Andrew, you make such an important point about the dose makes the poison because you know they're obviously in the in the animal trials they're they're testing different dosages and when they did see some sort of hormone disruption we're talking about huge huge doses and what we were talking about um, was that you know artificial sweeteners are sweeter than sugar so you're not going to be using them in any super large quantities um, and so but even more importantly as you just said. You you know, mouse and rat biology is not, it's not <laughs> the same as humans. So if the human studies are not turning up those concerns, um, then, then there you have it. Exactly. So, but on top of that, there were some 
human studies. And if you could see me, I have air quotes. Um, but there was a couple of um, what we call observational studies. And the, one of them in particular that garnered a lot of attention, it was actually presented in 2016 at the um, American Society for Reproductive Medicine um, the abstract was presented, and this was published in a journal called Fertility and Sterility, um, but it actually came under scrutiny by others in the field. So this, um, the Federal University of Sao Paulo in Brazil interviewed, so again, this is really just, this is an observational study here. They interviewed 24 women uh, between the years 2012 and 2014 about their nutritional habits before they underwent uh, in vitro fertilization. And this particular type of in vitro fertilization used intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So basically they're artificially fusing the sperm and the egg together um, in order to, to create this embryo. So they compared the answers of these women, according to what they self-reported about their nutritional habits, with the observations of the embryo quality from the eggs that were retrieved from this group. And what they concluded from their study were that women who reported that they drank diet sodas or use artificial sweeteners in coffee supposedly had decreased embryo quality and reduced rates of implantation. Um, but they also said here that consumption of regular soft drinks or regular coffee with sugar also had a link to reduced egg quality, embryo quality, and implantation rates. So basically they said, okay, well, you know, we asked these women to report and whether or not they drank artificial sweeteners or sugar-based sweeteners, they have reduced embryo quality and reduced implantation rates. So they didn't really have a true control group, someone that's abstaining from anything. Um, and they didn't include any sort of data about what we call confounding variables. So what is the underlying health status of these women? Are the women that are drinking diet sodas or using artificial sweeteners and coffee um, overweight? Do they have other risk factors? Do Are they older? Do they have other, other medical conditions that could impact fertility like endometriosis? None of that actually reported in this study. Um, so, so that is a huge limitation and it's something to be aware of that you need to take this conclusion with a grain of salt. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So there was an, a different study that came out that was actually more comprehensive that was published in the journal Epidemiology. And here they investigated 3,828 women that were trying to conceive. So obviously orders of magnitude more than the study that we, we just discussed. Um, these women were followed for a period of four years until pregnancy or for up to 12 menstrual cycles if they did not subsequently become pregnant. The women were aged 21 to 45 
years. They they did a pretty good job of normalizing to different demographics, um, and they were not using fertility treatments. And this nutritional study or this um, questionnaire that they completed, it had questions on all sorts of different sorts of dietary consumption. So soda, um, both sugar-sweetened and diets, so artificially sweetened, but also other things like fruit juices, um, which presumably derive most of their sweetness from naturally occurring other sugars, energy drinks, um, and sports drinks. And they looked at things like time to pregnancy. They calculated um, fecundity ratios, so um, how fertile someone is. And they normalized and looked at um, proportions of of sugar-sweetened beverages versus no sugar-sweetened beverages or, um, or artificially sweetened beverages. And what was really interesting was not only did this study find no association between consumption of artificially sweetened beverages, particularly soda, which is in direct contrast to the other study. Um, But they found that fecundity was reduced amongst those who drank more than seven sugar-sweetened sodas per week. They found that fecundity was reduced amongst women that consumed more than seven sugar-sweetened beverages, just generally speaking. So that could be fruit juices, it could be sports drinks, it could be soda. But when they actually normalized, they found that it was actually further reduced amongst those who drank more than seven sugar-sweetened sodas per week. So that seemed to have the greatest impact on um, reduction in in fertility, essentially, whereas diet soda had no association. Um, So I found that very interesting because it actually suggests that sugar could potentially be an impact factor here. But again, we know this is an observational study. There are confounding variables. So we're not saying sugar is bad either, but I think the big takeaway here is, like all things, moderation is key, even with natural sugars. Um, Ultimately, I think the big takeaway here is that a lot of these misconceptions about the impact on fertility and pregnancy outcomes related to artificial sweeteners were born out of a lack of understanding of these types of animal studies, the fact that these animals are being given copious dosages of all sorts of different things. Um, but when you actually look at what's going on in humans, there there are no de- data to suggest that you know, daily consumption of moderate levels of artificial sweeteners, such as you would actually encounter in the foods you might eat or the drinks you might drink, are going to impact fertility either. And Andrea, we should let folks know that we did a podcast episode on study design. We have some posts on study design, and it's something that I would love to talk more about. Um, but definitely observational studies, you know, sometimes it is the more appropriate design based on, um, you know, time and funding. And uh, there are lots of reasons why you might do an observational study over an experimental one, but you also have to realize that there are limitations to those things. And in particular, you know, Andrea, you were raising some issues around recall bias in particular, you know, when we're asking people to to recall or remember certain things that they ate, maybe sometimes they're um, not remembering correctly or they um, are omitting information or whatever it may be. There are lots of reasons why they're not the gold standard. But I did, I wanted to mention one other thing. So I came across this um, this page. It's called, it's actually sweeteners.org and we'll link it on our show notes. 
but it's the International Sweeteners Association. And so they have links to to lots of studies here. And and basically, um, they have a statement that says that low and no-calorie sweeteners are amongst the most thoroughly researched ingredients worldwide. European and international authorities that have approved the safety of these ingredients include the European Food Safety Authority, the Joint Food and Agriculture Association, and the World Health Organization Expert Committee on Food Additives. And in the European Union, uh, the following 11 low and no-calorie sweeteners are approved for use in uh, in foods and drinks. And I'm not going to read all of them, but they do include um, aspartame and saccharin and sucralose, um, what I'm imagining is the scientific word for stevia. It's a stiviol, glycosides. Um, And anyway, we could, again, we'll link these on our show notes. Um, But those are all approved for use. Um, And on that page, if you do want to check it out, they have links to to lots of of studies that do support their safety. This is very European focused. So if you're curious about that, um, sweeteners were first regulated uh, at the European level in the 1990s. Um, They've had, they've gone through several reapproval processes. And again, they are still um, legal and approved for use there. So I think there's just a whole lot of uh, misinformation swirling. But when you actually dig into the research, there are no data to support that uh, artificial sweeteners are linked to infertility or any of these other myths um, that we'll be discussing. So the the next question, we got a lot of questions about whether um, people who have diabetes whether you know, some of these artificial sweeteners are are better, you know, are they are they good sugar substitutes for them? Um, and I'm asking that because a lot of people seem to think that our artificial sweeteners can actually cause diabetes or insulin resistance or glucose intolerance. So, can you talk a little bit about artificial sweeteners and diabetes? Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly where those claims come from, but they are. I mean, specifically, they are great alternatives to, you know, sucrose, um, you know, other monosaccharides, disaccharides, you know, for people that do have diabetes. So um, there is a consensus statement by experts in nutrition um, that the use of low-calorie sweeteners in diabetes management can contribute to um, better glycemic control. So these things you know, they can, they can allow people with diabetes to enjoy, you know, sweet foods, you know, desserts, things like that without, um, you know, affecting their blood glucose and things like that. And I almost wonder if the myth just comes from the fact that they are sweet, like sugar. Yeah, this, the, the evidence doesn't show that. So I'm not sure exactly where that's coming from. And I think, you know, as of right now, there there have been trials for most, if not all, of the FDA authorized artificial sweeteners and, and all, all have similar conclusions that they don't raise blood glucose levels, they don't affect blood glucose management, they don't lead to um, glucose intolerance or insulin resistance, and so that they are, in fact, safe for individuals with diabetes to consume as these alternatives. Is that right? Definitely. Yep. I actually dated a a type one diabetic in college. And um, I remember, 
remember, I always had to keep, you know, juice and gummy bears and things like that on hand in case he had forgotten to, you know, recalibrate his, he had a, he had an indwelling pump, um, if, in case he had forgotten to calibrate his pump or in case he had forgotten to eat at his regular intervals. But I know that a lot of times, you know, in certain circumstances, he would actually, you know, intentionally or unintentionally binge on sugar, and that could lead to, um, you know, a, a, cl- a crisis for him, right? Um, and I and I, I envision, you know, having access to these things, artificial sweeteners or, or artificially sweetened foods can help curb that craving while not also messing with their, their insulin signaling, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And maybe worth mentioning, Andrea, in just a few weeks, we're going to have a, an entire episode dedicated to diabetes. Um, we're going to have our amazing uh, executive producer, Montana Mullins, will be on. She is a type 1 diabetic, and maybe we can pick her brain about, uh, about this as well. Okay, Andrew, did you want to ask Aaron about, I think we had one final myth we wanted to discuss? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, obviously all of these are really getting to the crux of the fact that artificial sweeteners are in fact not harmful, particularly at the amounts that we use them at. Um, but there's been a lot of attention in recent years about the gut microbiome, right? We, you know, as a microbiologist, I understand the fact that our body is made up with trillions of bacteria and many of them have very beneficial effects on us. They help us extract nutrients that we couldn't metabolize otherwise. They help um, maintain uh, normal metabolic processes. They actually help form some of the mass of our stool. Um, But obviously, as the microbiome has gained attention and people are understanding the importance of it, uh, misconceptions arise with regard to that. We hear all sorts of things about cleansing and refreshing your gut microbiome. And so, of course, artificial sweeteners have come under fire there as well, um, with many people claiming that um, taking in or consuming artificial sweeteners will disrupt our microbiome and they'll affect our gut microbiota. So, Aaron, anything you can chime in on that? Yeah, you probably know more about it than me. But um, <laughs> so obviously that area of research is, um, you know, there's a lot of new research happening in that area all the time. But you know, as of right now, there there isn't really any evidence to say that they impact, you know, gut health negatively. Um, so obviously, like everything we eat is going to impact, you know, our, our microbiome in some way. But like, I think a lot of times that's used to like just say when we don't know much about something. I mean, you, you hear claims a lot about things that people like and they say, you know, it impacts it positively and there might be mm-hmm. a little bit of evidence for that. But um, you know, and then it, it seems like all of these sort of like demonized ingredients, that's just like something they kind of add on to the claims like, you know, oh, it causes cancer and it affects the gut microbiome and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there certainly could be some research in the future that that could show that because it is sort of a, you know, newer area of research. But there, you know, there, there have been studies on it and there there really isn't any evidence, again, like at the doses that we are consuming, which again, these doses of these artificial sweeteners are very low, you know, there, there really isn't evidence to show that they negatively impact gut health. Yeah. And I think another important thing 
you know, that you touched on early in the beginning is that the nature of the these molecules, many of them don't even make it into the lower gastrointestinal tract, right? They're being excreted early on. They're not actually being broken down or metabolized by our body. So we consume them as a very minute proportion of the food we're taking in. They taste sweet. They give us that satiation of eating something sweet. But because our body can't utilize those particular molecules, they're filtered into the blood, they go into the kidneys, and they're excreted in urine, or they're rapidly metabolized and they don't actually affect any of the bacteria or interact with the bacteria that may be in our our lower GI tract. Um, So again, I think, you know, it's a great point there. There are no data right now that demonstrate that these affect gut microbiome, particularly at the quantities that are, are that are being consumed by people. I do also just want to note that sugar alcohols are sort of another category of lower calorie sweeteners, not necessarily zero calorie, but um, those do sort of affect, I, I know some people with like IBS, there's some research showing that that can affect um, GI symptoms and stuff like that. That's specifically sugar alcohols. Um, none of these low calorie sweeteners we've been talking about today, but I just know people ask me about those and it's in kind of the same category, but sugar alcohols are kind of also a separate category. That's a great distinction. And I think it's important to note that, of course, you can't lump every single sweetener, every single artificial sweetener into the same basket, right? They all have slightly different principles. They all have different chemical compositions, just like everything that we consume, right? You know, we want to get away from this appeal to nature fallacy. You know, things that you that are natural that you consume are going to have different effects on your body and your metabolism as well. Yeah. So, Erin, I mean, this, this has been incredibly informative. Is there anything else that you think we should know about artificial sweeteners or or anything else you'd like to share before we start to wrap up? I mean, I think the biggest question, you know, I get is people hear negative stuff about them and, you know, it's like, oh, I'm drinking a Diet Coke a day. Should I stop? And it's like, kind of like we we said so many times here, like it, it's a very low amount. If you enjoy that Diet Coke every day, I mean, there's no safety reason to like mm-hmm. stop drinking it. So I think, understanding that a lot of these claims that you hear, um, you know, sometimes they're being told to sell you something. If it sounds like it probably isn't true, you know, it's it's probably not true. <laughs> so like, you know, just, and like I always say too on my page, like if people are making just super general claims, like it causes cancer and it's like, well, that's a pretty general claim, you know, like, Did they cite any evidence, Um, you know, specifically what doses, what types of cancer? Like these if these things are just so broad, you know, they're probably not true if they're not citing anything. So, yeah, I mean, I would just say if you enjoy them, there's no safety reason really to stop consuming them. So, Erin, you made an interesting comment. Just one last question. I think you said that you used to believe the claims that these things, that the artificial sweeteners and, and other substances were harmful, right? You, you yeah, to, yeah. So how did you like see the light? Yeah, so I think I read a book, gosh, it was probably like back in high school, and it was just, <laughs> just complete fear-mongering, you know, taking, like we talked about, those high-dose rodent studies and you know, in high school, I didn't understand any of it. So I was just like, just sort of believed it and then just sort of went on believing what I read about. Um, 
And it wasn't really until I kind of started questioning all of this stuff, you know, like I, I used to be an organic foods consumer and, mm. um, you know, it was really like, I would say five, six, seven years ago, I kind of started like, oh, these are kind of just things I believe I should maybe like look into this stuff a little bit more. And just like my experience in the food industry and learning more like as I worked in the food industry too. So I think it just kind of, I think sometimes we just like believe these things and then we just you know, confirmation bias. We kind of like seek out sources that confirm those biases. So really it just started with me like questioning a lot of these beliefs that I had, like really just questioning those biases sort of got me to start looking at the evidence. And for me, it really wasn't even, I I personally don't like the taste of really any of these artificial sweeteners. So um, for me, I think it just was like, kind of like, I don't really consume them. So it wasn't really important for me to like look at the evidence really. Um, cause I just personally don't like them. But, um, but yeah, and when I did start looking into it, I was like, oh, this is like the complete opposite of, of what I believed. <laughs> so, well, you bring such an important perspective. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This is such an interesting topic. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I think it brings up that point of, you know, we we all have to obviously not everybody is a scientist, but there are ways that we can all be better consumers of information and it's unfortunate that there are so many sources of fear-mongering and misinformation out there, but I think Aaron you you brought up that great point about making broad brush gestures about you know these broad claims and and those are things that in science were very specific about data right so you don't make those broad claims if it's driven by data. So I think that's kind of a little tidbit for our listeners to take with them um, as they read information online, whether it be about artificial sweeteners, whether it be about COVID, uh, whether it be about all sorts of other types of science. So with that, thank you for joining us today, Aaron, um, in particular. <laughs> we we hoped our listeners learned a thing or two. Please make sure to check out Aaron's Instagram page at Food Science Babe. She puts out amazing content debunking all sorts of nutritional and food science related topics. Um, and if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to visit our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com where you can catch all of our episodes, our show notes, our searchable database for data-driven resources. You can even pick yourself up some Unbiased Signs merch. Next episode, since we don't shy away from controversy, we are going to tackle the topic of chiropractic, what it is, if it works, and what the data say. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 progress on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.